this was. When the number one son goes back, play cards with the devil's hands. But daddy got real sick, so quick, for walls never understand. I was the one who got food with the guns and took the money from the rich man's land. Give me some water. Shot a man on the Mexican border. Cuckoo water. It's lights out and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2520. Somewhere near Akron, Ohio. And live via Zencaster, paid subscription, the campus of Otterbein University. This is Tackling the Chicane. So, yet another installment of Yes, But This Song Is Better. We all know Take Me Home Tonight on 80s Radio, Eddie Money, backed up by one of the Shondells, I think. Uh, Her name escapes me right now, but compared to this particular song, that one is terrible. So dive into Eddie Money, second album, 1978 release, Life for the Taking. And if you were used to Take Me Home Tonight, give that one a listen. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Other yeah. Than, yes, this one is better. <laughs> I, I enjoy that song. Uh, not a huge, well, I guess I don't have a ton of knowledge on Eddie's catalog as a whole, but uh, yeah, I like that song. So, Well, he's a pretty good rocker. I mean, here's a guy who started out his life as a New York City policeman and then decided that maybe, you know, might want to play a little music. And it worked out well for him. Yeah. But later... <laughs> Later in life, they did a series. Uh, I don't know if it was on MTV or or whatever cable channel it was on, but it was it was based around his family. Um, oh yeah. yeah, it's a pretty good rocking album from '78 for <laughs> for you guys who may have may or may not have um, given it a spin. So try it out. Will do. Uh, fully loaded podcast tonight. Uh, we've got drivers losing seats in F1. We've got the British British Grand Prix to speak upon. Uh, fair to say, at least in my opinion, the most entertaining race of the season, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, on the soccer side of things, uh, 
kind of felt like uh, when you have to put down a dog that has too many ailments for the U.S. men's national team, <laughs> at least this uh, particular roster. So, uh, yeah, we will get into that as well. But um, welcome aboard, gentlemen. Bailey, how are you? We're doing good. We're doing real good. <laughs> Sweet. Well, why don't we just waste no more time and kind of get into the the headliner in the F1 paddock this week, post-British Grand Prix. Uh, I believe it was Tuesday now. We're recording Thursday night. Uh, Tuesday, uh, AlphaTauri announced that Daniel Ricciardo would be replacing Nick DeVries for the remainder of the season. Uh, Nick DeVries, it's been pretty well documented at this point, struggling in that AlphaTauri seat this year. I believe he is rock bottom of the driver's championship standings. Um, and has that rookie status, although I think it's fair to say maybe the rookie status is a little bit of a false advertisement because we're talking about a 27 or 28 year old Nick DeVries right now, who of course we know ran in the Williams last year in a race has tested many a time for Mercedes um, and is actually a formula E world champion. So fair to say it's not a, it's not like a Logan Sargent rookie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, on the other side of the coin, Daniel Ricardo is someone that, you know, I think even people that m- might not even really watch F1 probably know about because yeah. of his personality. Just refresh my memory. Who was he the standby driver for? What Which team? Uh, um, Red Bull. Daniel Ricardo, you mean? Yes. Yeah, he was the reserve driver for Red Bull. Uh all of this year, uh, I think he did run a practice session at one point. Um, and as we know, AlphaTauri is basically the, the farm team for Red Bull. So he will be technically on loan uh, to AlphaTauri for the rest of the year. But all of their drivers are technically on loan because they're all part of the Red Bull system. So it, it'll be interesting and, you know. I I'll, I have to digress a bit on DeVries, you know, zero points this year. Um, maybe two points during his entire career. His highest race race finish was ninth. Not too shabby. Um, highest grid position was eighth. But if anybody out there has been watching the series, as hopefully you have been, um, just struggled, struggled quite a bit. I mean, even more than, you know, Haas has had its fair share of things dealt to that team. And, you know, I think AlphaTauri as the development team for Red Bull just can't have a guy be that weak and slow. Plus, you know, Ricardo, fan favorite. So you throw him into an AlphaTauri suit and now all of a sudden, You've got that. You've got media that's going to follow him around and so on and so forth. Um, this And so goes F1. So I, I, 
I'm not, I'm not saddened by the replacement. It's basically a performance driven series. And if you, if you can't cut the mustard, then, you know, you gotta go. And it kind of begs the question, you know, is Logan Sargent, how long is he going to be able to hang around? Because he's not too far behind, right? Yeah. Um, I think that is a different set of circumstances in regards to Logan Sargent. Um, one, like I kind of hinted at earlier, I think Logan is more of like a, a, a true F1 rookie in the sense that he's uh, at least a few years younger than Nick DeVries. He hasn't been kind of floating around in the F1 driver's sphere for as long as Nick DeVries has. And also, I think Williams, you know, signed Logan Sargent and knew it was going to be a project. They knew he wasn't just going to hop in that car and get points week in and week out. Whereas with Alfatari and Nick DeVries, I think they signed him thinking he was more of a, a proven product and expected better results at least to be challenging Yuki Sonoda, which he hasn't really done at all. This particular series is the great equalizer amongst drivers, as it should be. So, yeah, I mean, you you get a seat, and then from that second forward, whether it's performing at the lower end of the tier or the higher end of the tier, at least you have to perform in some way. Um, so I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised by, by the move. And as I said, I think, you know, this is going to shine some more light on a very strong team. Uh, Pierre Gasly has had some pretty good results. And if they can just inject a little bit of Ricardo <laughs> into that, I mean, he's a fan favorite. People like him. So we shall see. I think it's fair to say that along with what Ricardo may or may not do, that AlphaTauri's probably developed the worst car in the grid for this season, at least through the first 10 races. And then I guess question I'll pose to both of you, whoever wants to take it is with a rookie is 10 races really long enough to know that this is not your guy. Bailey, maybe what do you think on this? It's a hard question to answer for sure. Um, no, but right. So there's so many other extenuating circumstances to the, to that decision. I would normally say no. I would say, you know, between seasons, maybe make that evaluation. But Nick DeVries has been absolutely, he hasn't been underperforming. He's been terrible. Like, just like absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, like every time we're watching the race, mistakes, like not like mistakes that somebody at that level should be making. And I get it. Like they're, like you said, they haven't developed the best car but there are cars around him that it can compete with and he's not. Yeah. Um, and like, like you said, it's 
I I think he's like he's he's not a young guy. I think he's like twenty seven or twenty eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, nah. I I agree with their decision. They could have given him the rest of the season, but they made a decision. And I think it's going to be interesting. Like you said, Daniel Ricardo, everybody really likes him. So I'm interested to see that race now that he won't be in it. And, you know, I guess the one last part of this that I wanted to talk about, and maybe the added aspect of this whole situation is we know Ricardo is an elite F1 driver. Sure, his McLaren stint wasn't all that great, but realistically he's going to take this opportunity and hopefully use it as a launch pad to better teams, whether that be Red Bull or whoever. Um, But now that we have seen four or five consecutive races of Sergio Perez sort of floundering, do you guys get the sense that maybe this whole Ricardo thing is more like, uh, let's see if maybe this guy would be better for the Red Bull team than Sergio Perez. Oh, well, you know, anything can happen. And I, I don't think that Perez deserves the criticism that he's gotten for finishing where he is. There is something askew between the Verstappen car and the Perez car. Now they would have you think that these are equal machines, but I also know that Sergio Perez has enough talent that if the machines were truly equal, we wouldn't be seeing a one V six at Silverstone. Um, I could be completely wrong about that, but, you know, there's so many factors involved between cars and teams. I, I just, I, and we, what well, we can talk about it. I guess we'll just get right into the GP. Um, first of all, Silverstone has become over the last two years of me really following F1, one of my, if not my favorite race. And, and this one didn't disappoint either. Um, you know, we had Lando Norris who had a fantastic GP and finishes just 3.7 seconds behind Verstappen. We haven't seen a short gap like that for quite some time. Um, so I'll take that for what it's worth, but just the qualifying and the GP itself all throughout the calendar, I don't think there's another race that provides this kind of entertainment, at least not that I've seen. Yeah. Once again, like I, you know, we just talked about and I kind of teased at the beginning, this has probably been the best place to race in F1 over the past few seasons. And this one only proved that again um 
obviously the big talking point is McLaren <laughs> this weekend or this past weekend. First off, if we want to go back to qualifying, uh, Lando Norris puts that McLaren on provisional pole uh, deep into the Q3 session. Now, of course, for Stappen, it was about five seconds of Lando Norris being on pole, but uh, just to even be... Think back to, uh, what was it, Abu Dhabi or Bahrain or whatever the first Grand Prix was, I think it was Bahrain, when McLaren finished... 17th in a DNF to now where they've gotten a few upgrades in and uh, have progressed throughout the season. And we're seeing Lando Norris pretty comfortably pilot that McLaren to second and rookie Oscar Piastri finishing fourth. I mean, that is a huge deal. And frankly, I think it's exactly what the series needed. Um, with the Red Bull dominance of this season, I think we've had a few episodes before this where we were kind of struggling for big talking points. Uh, we kind of found it now, I think, with this McLaren team. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we can start by having Norris take the lead for five laps. Uh, gets around the Red Bull. I was questioning how long that would actually last, but if he can lead for five, that's that was great. Um, you know, Norris stayed within a second of Verstappen, even 10 laps in, which in some of the past races we've watched, that, you know, wasn't the case. So he was... He was right there and and on you know the tail of the red bull car so that to me is worth a watch um we had an alpine retire at lap 10 i think it was esteban ocon and then there was a little bit of weather plus or minus uh i thought it was kind of funny i put a note down here um that's disparity between the teams calling whether it's going to rain or not <laughs> so red bull says you know rain coming mclaren says no rain mercedes says no rain so then you start to think so are the guys on the bench in the pit are they trying to strategize a bit by not panicking a driver saying you know there might be some precipitation um, or not. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I had for the first basically half of this race. And then. Yeah. I, I just, I liked, you know, I actually got to watch this with some friends, and you're trying to give them sort of the context of the season if most of them hadn't watched a whole race at all this year. But, um, and, you know, it's, well, Verstappen <laughs> is probably going to run away with it within a few laps. And I was pleasantly surprised with Norris's performance, especially in the beginning, where, like you said, he really did keep it 
pretty interesting, at least for 15, 20 laps. Like, it wasn't a total blowout. I mean, we've seen races where Verstappen's 10 seconds ahead by lap 15, 20, whatever. Uh, so that was, it was just a really pleasant surprise to see uh, the upgraded McLarens actually provide a little bit of challenge in and that, that goes outside of just challenging Red Bull. I mean, uh, putting two cars uh, before Fernando Alonso's Aston Martin, putting Lando Norris ahead of uh, Lewis Hamilton and Piastri going ahead of George Russell, um, I thought was a really big deal as well. Um, I don't know, Bailey, what did you think sort of like some general... Uh, overview of this one what did what did you kind of take away from this race well i never thought i'd say i was i was excited to see the number two spot only be behind by 3.7 seconds Um, (laughs) yeah first of all um that was one of the most interesting things for me was just these past couple races have been almost comical with how much it wasn't competitive uh in the one two spot at least um, I was watching uh, Perez for a good bit because, like you said, he's been struggling in these qualifyings. Um, and to just kind of answer your earlier question a little bit, I don't, I don't foresee Perez going anywhere on the Red Bull team. Um, it might be in the back of some people's minds at Red Bull, but he had a bad qualifying. He started in, what, 15th place? Yeah, 15th place and he and he finishes nine spots ahead in a 52 lap race he would have finished better mm-hmm. had he had eight more laps maybe i mean he was yeah. cruising. he's a talented driver he's fun to watch drive um and i think anybody who can start in the and he's done it like two or three times now so it's not really a fluke he's started in the back like three times out of the past four races and he's finished in the points, well into the points each time. That seems to be the rub, though, is his qualifying. And as I said before, there's a bit of a mystery there between the two machines, the it, one car and the 11 car. Um, it does beg the question, you know, the car is obviously good enough to come up nine, you know, with obviously with Perez piloting it, it's good enough to come up nine positions in this, on this racetrack. But what's going on that Sergio Perez didn't just become a shit qualifier. You know, so I, I, I just don't think it's really his fault. I don't want to say that because at some point it's somebody's fault, but I don't, I think there's something else going on with these qualifying. So that was something I was keeping a, uh, close eye on i should say but um mclaren obviously surprised the heck out of me um that was just really fun to watch um i wanted to see aston martin do a little bit more um seems like mercedes might be kind of um putting one on them because they were they were neck and neck for for a while they still are but it just seems like mercedes has been performing better in the last like two or three races so overall really really interesting race to watch mm-hmm. i i just thought 
you know, with this whole Aston Martin thing, they were they were the f- breath of fresh air at the beginning of the season where, you know, McLaren has sort of morphed into that in the last couple of weeks, especially with this one. But the Mercedes-Aston Martin storyline, I think, is still pretty interesting. But I think you can kind of just point really to Lance Stroll as to why... Uh, it's probably not going to be a huge talking point by the end of the season in terms of whether or not Aston Martin is going to surpass Mercedes or anything like that. One, just the driver talent is too strong on Mercedes. Lewis Hamilton, George Russell are, you know, sure, they're not winning races and they haven't been past two years, minus one, but um, they consistently run clean races. They don't DNF much and they're usually in the top five or right around it. So you're not seeing that consistency from Aston Martin. Yeah, but if we compare this season to last season, you know, Stroll has really come into it a bit. I mean, he's at least boxing around, right? So he's up there in the qualifying. He has good race position to start. And we know, I, I think we all know that, you know, the Alonzo factor has a lot to do with that. Um, I just want to kind of tangent a bit. You know, we did have on lap 33, the Haas car, uh, second power unit failure this weekend, uh, which brings out the virtual safety car and then a full safety car, which thankfully gathers the field up. But I would be remiss if I didn't, hit my special effects button as we have not done for quite some time and call a power unit failure classic of course (laughs) Uh, so you know we all know that this is a ferrari unit Mm -hmm. in the haas and this was the second failure they had one in either practice or qualifying, I don't recall. And then one, you know. So how can Haas have, I think they have very talented drivers. I really do. I think Magnuson is great. But when you can't show up and you can't bring a car that's going to actually perform, it's no fault of, of his. Right. So just, yeah, as a a Haas fan, because I'm, you know, I'm going to root for the American team right now. um, Just kind of disappointing that they can't basically get their shit together. Um, But we've seen that. Yeah. Continue to see it, I think. The reliability thing is definitely an issue. Um, but really, they're not in putting themselves in competitive positions either. I think the closest comparison in terms of teams that you can point to to Haas is Williams. And Albon finishes 8th in this one. Sargent finishes 11th. You can't tell me the Williams car, in theory, is that much better than the Haas. Uh, I mean, it is better, but 
the drivers seem to be getting more out of the car than what especially Magnuson has been doing. And that's one thing I've been wanting to bring up for a while, but Kevin Magnuson is not, he's not been good this year. I think it's really fair to say. Uh, Nico Hulkenberg comes in this season and has outraced and outqualified him uh, more often than not, a lot more often than not. So something to take a look at there. It's interesting because Magnuson made Mick Schumacher look pretty bang average. Uh, and I thought Mick Schumacher was maybe a little unlucky to get the ax. Um, and now Hulkenberg has kind of made Kevin Magnuson look pretty much bang average. So it, I think there's a couple things that Haas need to figure out. One is reliability, but that's more on Ferrari and two, a, a driver lineup that is consistently going to get the most out of the car that they develop, which it's not really happening. Yeah. So the only other real notes of mentioning, lap 42, typical Verstappen. He's pulling away by three seconds, uh, clocking the fastest lap. And, you know, he radios in that he thinks the tires are are going away. Mm-hmm. And now what I've really learned about Max's radio calls are they're mostly bullshit. Yeah. I mean, when you're, you're clocking a three second lead and you're clocking the fastest lap and you're calling back in saying, I think I might have a problem. We've heard many, many, many things. I think I hit this. I think this happened. I think it's all strategy. And I guess that's okay. I'm just really struggling to find any kind of, and I don't know if the rest of you F1 fans out there feel the same way, but this is a really unlikable guy. And I don't know why that is exactly. I, it, it could be because he's dominating. It also could be because he just, he could be dominating in, I have to back up a little bit because I wasn't watching F1 when Lewis Hamilton was dominating. But when I see Lewis Hamilton, especially this particular weekend in his home country, how much more endearing he is as a driver to the fans. You know, he always gives props to people who come out to watch him. I've never heard Verstappen say that one time. Yeah. Uh, Lewis is definitely a a fan favorite. I mean, I know plenty of people who barely watch Formula One who know who Lewis Hamilton is. Yeah. And they and they love him. I it's really hard to like the the uh I think these tires are going away guy. <laughs> yeah. Bro, as, you're twenty you seconds away. in the lead. Yeah, you're right. you just sound like a douche. And I just like watching him drive. I do. But Everybody hates the guy who wins 13 out of 13 races. I I understand that. Um, Yeah, I think the general disdain from you is, look, yeah, there are some character issues that I don't particularly love about him. Not to say that he's, you know, horrible person or whatever, but 
I think it's, you know, you don't like seeing guys win seven of nine races or eight of 10 or whatever the hell it is now. It's just like, yeah, it does great on you, especially when this was a great race. Uh, he still wins by basically four seconds, and that's because the only reason it was that close anyways was because of the safety car. So, Right, right. right. But, yeah. Just all he would have to do is throw the people a bone. Give the people what they want. It's, it is a competitive sport, and you don't have to be likable to be good and to be the best in the world. No. But it would take so little effort to just be a little bit more personable towards anyone while you're on TV. And I did read a side story about how the head of F1 has been approached and asked, you know, how long can this go on and why is the car so dominant and can't you guys figure out what the advantage is and are they cheating? And basically he said, look, they have it figured out. And if no one else can bring their team up to that level of, of racing, then, you know, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. He's not wrong. I have a team for, for having the best car and the best drivers. That's, 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 yeah. Plenty of people complained, but I don't think it was as late during that time. Yeah. I'm, I'm not as bothered by the dominance as I think many people are. First off, I kind of agree with with uh, the F1 head, if that's what he said. It's not, it's not Red Bull's responsibility to make sure the nine other teams put out a product that can compete with them. It's their responsibility to develop a car that they think will win world championships, and they did that. Um, so... And now, more than ever, F1 has been trying to make the series more competitive. I mean, we're talking about a sport that there were eras where teams would fold in the middle of the season because they ran out of money, and they would go a whole season never scoring points, never finishing in the top ten. So, look... This is just how sports work. <laughs> when yeah. the best team, when the best teams figure their shit out, it's how can the other teams improve? Which we, right. I think, I think we're even seeing. We're seeing across the rest of the grid. It's just Red Bull is so much better. But look at the constructor standings. We're probably staring down the barrel of four teams outside of Red Bull, maybe even five collecting more than a hundred points easily, like easily over a hundred points. Last year it was the big three and then McLaren and Alpine took basically until the end of the year to get a hundred points. So the series is competitive. It's great to see Mercedes, albeit, you know, 207, eight points behind Red Bull, but they're right there in second. Aston Martin in third, Ferrari four, McLaren five. 
And then, you know, if we go to the driver standings, we still have the two Red Bull drivers separated by 99 points. So for stat, Perez is still, he's still in it. And I still, I think he's going to probably collect himself at some point. I don't see him taking a dive. Um, but Alonzo there in third, Hamilton four, Sainz. I think the real story between this year and last year is how um, Ferrari hasn't really been an injector of any mm-hmm. kind right now. And, and, and this past race at Silverstone shows that. I mean, they, they, they did not finish quite well. No, nine and ten. And like you said, I think what you injector is a good phrase because last year they injected competition into this series that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise because Mercedes last year was, they were pretty shit until basically the end. Um, Ferrari provided direct competition last year to Red Bull for a lot of the season. Um, This year... Not so much. Um, 157 points in fourth behind Aston Martin, which would have been unthinkable to say last year. So I don't, I think it's uh, not a case of having bad drivers. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, But um, the leadership at Ferrari is, is pretty much terrible. Uh, and it seems like they're one of the most mismanaged teams on the grid. Well, that's been evident for quite some time now. I mean, they have good drive. Their drivers are world-class. I mean, well, all the drivers are world-class, but they have great drivers. And how many times can you watch a race and go, what the fuck is Ferrari yeah. doing? Like, What's that call? Why are you doing like the, you one or two? You're like, oh, there we go, whatever. But it's every other race at this point. I go, well, that's weird. Why would they do that? And then it ends up horribly for them. Normally, I would just chalk it up to me not being as smart as the race engineer. They pay a bunch of money to to know but when somebody does something and then it results in a terrible finish it's kind of evident that that's the reason why it happened they always seem to be on this sort of like completely different tire strategy to the rest of the grid where the ferrari will like pit 10 laps before everyone else or 10 laps after and then they're just a lame duck by the end of the race uh i think the same it's just like what there's so many dumb strategy calls. Yeah. And I think you kind of nailed it there. It's all about tires. Yeah. It always has been all about tires. And what we've seen from this Ferrari team this year is just dunce cap moves on qualifying and practice. And what are we going to start on and what should I do? And should I come in? Should I not come in? And then there's arguments between, um, the drivers. I I don't think I should. And, you know, we're going to ask you to, and so on and so forth. So, um, shaping up to be a much more interesting 
um, series than I thought it would be. And I think we have a lot to look forward to here in the next, um, I don't know what we have 10 or so left, right? Uh, I believe there will be 22 GPs and we've done 10. So yeah, we're about halfway, uh, off, off week, uh, this weekend followed by a double header of, or back to back of the Hungarian GP and the Belgian GP. And then F1 takes its summer little hiatus in the month of August. Uh, and then they'll finish out, but yeah, I think you're right. It is going to be hopefully a bit more compelling than the first stint of the year. Uh, and I think, you know, teams like McLaren will definitely help that be the case. Yeah. Sounds good. So I guess let's, uh, put some boots on and go to (laughs) a little soccer talk, right? Yeah. Um, plenty to get to here. We, this will, uh, unfortunately be kind of the, the rounding out of our gold cup us MNT coverage. Um, and we will get to the discussion of last night's, uh, thing that happened in which the U S were bounced, but, uh, from the competition by Panama, uh, want to begin this particular segment with Canada, uh, the first match of the two, uh, that we're going to cover here. Um, like I've kind of mentioned throughout this discussion of the gold cup, neither of these teams and many of these teams in the competition, not bringing their premier lineups to this tournament. And that is logistical more than anything. Um, if you want more context, maybe go back to previous episodes, but safe to say the U S and Canada, not bringing their best lineups, um, to this particular competition. Um, what, has kind of been the theme of these gold cup matches from this particular team is they play a first half that is either them getting outplayed or almost next to nothing happens. And that is pretty much what happened in this Canada match. So turn it over to you guys with maybe some, some thoughts on this one, at least in the early stages. Well, let me say this about that. When I pulled up the recording and I saw that it was three hours and 30 minutes, I I looked at Bailey and I said, what in the hell could have possibly happened? We had a very long delay at the first minutes of the match. Uh, Ref took a hard ball, I guess, right to the... Crane board. Yeah. Who would have thought that this guy got hit with a fucking bat? Well, yeah. and so that, let me just, let me expand a bit. Was it really that bad? I mean, I he, mean, and why didn't they just carry this guy? I think it had more to do with the function of the referee and that they may not have had someone that could 
just jump in and take his place? Is yeah. That- well, you the fourth official who is the one that stands on the sidelines and like holds up subs boards would take over for him, which I think he ended up doing. So they that is so that's who you a want a process, you know, I guess. Probably the match is the guy who throws the numbers up. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Just certified. Yeah, as the other it's guys, it's like the it's like an MLB where they'll rotate jobs. So yeah, I mean they're all technically qualified, whether or not they call. It like, listen, well. I I understand that these guys are kick. These guys are actually kicking balls way harder than most people would actually understand. Uh, unless you've played the sport and you could tell the size of the field and how hard these guys are kicking the ball. But he had a bloody nose. And even if it was broken, like, just get off the field. Like, the clock is running. Get your sub in. It. it they were talking at one point. They were The uh, commentators were like, man, maybe we should just call a redo and just redrop the ball. It just restart. But like that, I mean, just starting out, I was like, okay, I can kind of see where this three and a half hours is coming from. So, right. And the whole first half was basically a draw. I mean, there was nothing happening. Um, there was a little bit of scrap right before the first half ended. Other than that, I mean, they had plus 10 in stoppage. So all of a sudden, this thing becomes a marathon. Yeah. Right? And so you're, you're 55 minutes now instead of 45. That's what every, even figuratively speaking, that's what every game of this tournament for the U.S. has felt like because this particular roster has just kind of failed to excite. And, you know, they're brought in hoping to challenge that team we saw in the Nations League for roster spots for tournaments down the line uh and i can't help but just think that uh, these past two games and even uh, you know in the first half of this canada game that any of them really did much to help their stock in terms of making it to the big tournaments um and yet it did feel like a team that and this is pretty much the case like hadn't really played with each other very much. And you could see that when they played Jamaica in the first game, you know, being just outplayed by teams that aren't as good as them, which is really frustrating. I, I actually really enjoyed watching this Canada game. I mean, so much so that I stayed up past my bedtime to watch it. Um, not the first half. Two nights. Two nights. We split the three and thirty into a one fifteen and a one fifteen. Right. So the first the first half was like you said, very bland. But I wouldn't classify it as good soccer. I would classify it as entertaining soccer. That is how I would say I felt about the second half of this game. Yeah. I mean, everybody loves to see the goalie pulled. Like they're pl- that's that's how you know a team's trying to, we're gonna score you know when you got your your keeper putting balls in the box like i don't know it was just really fun for me to watch yeah and it did feel like neither of these teams were like right. 
really loving the idea of playing another 30 minutes against each other. So when we did have scenarios in which the keepers coming up on corner kicks, it, it did kind of, like you say, it, it showed that maybe there was some <laughs> truly attacking, attacking impetus for these teams to, especially the U S I think as the favorite going, you know, we, we really don't want to play another 30 minutes against a, a pretty scrappy Canada side that are going to make things tough for us. Um, and it did feel like just kind of fast forwarding to that first goal from Brandon Vasquez that when that one came in, it, I thought, you know, that's that, uh, a great, I mean, this game was in Cincinnati, if I'm not mistaken, which Brandon Vasquez plays for Cincinnati and, you know, him getting that goal, celebrating with the hometown crowd, places fired up, Canada, backs against the wall at that point it did seem like you know this this is it prime yeah primed one might say for a victory lap <laughs> yeah finally in the 88th minute we have a vasquez goal and usa goes up one nil um, after that it was kind of a little chaotic i think there was a PK, right? Yeah, so that was from Miles Robinson, who apparently thought we were playing handball or something, uh, a sport that is what you would consider the opposite of, of soccer or football. Um, not once, but twice being at least reviewed for a handball. Uh, first time gets off the gets off the hook, uh I thought somewhat uh, luckily. <laughs> and then the second time, uh, gifting Canada a penalty um, that basically solidified this game heading into extra time. Um, so Miles Robinson, someone that was kind of seen as one of the better players in this roster, um, not really doing much to help his stock in this particular match and uh let's just say i didn't really love the prospect of extra time against canada <laughs> so our keeper in et for this particular game played very well um you'll have to remind me of his name matt turner just a great goal presence I was a little bit disappointed, and I guess we'll just kind of shoot ourselves off into the next Panama game, unless you have anything to say about the end of this one, I, which it was it was very fun to watch. Anytime it goes to, to kicks, mm -hmm. for me, and, and for the, the little moment in soccer that you actually sit on the edge of your seat, I mean, that's that's the part I really like about it. But at the same time, I'm sitting there, you know, you're like, oh, please miss, please miss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or please save, please save. These... Um, Go ahead, man. Go ahead. The, so 
when it goes to when it goes to uh, like PKs like that, you if you never sat in the goal on anything, you have to be. I mean, Turner was cold blooded. Like at least for let me put it for the first two kicks, I was like, this guy is a fucking machine. Like is the first time I've been impressed in a in a long time with a keeper. They always get the most crap. But I was like, oh, my, this guy's got it locked down. And then, you know, he had, he had a few mistakes. But sometimes the kicker just gets you. Because what it is is a mind game between the kicker and you. It's all about body language, where they're looking, where their hips are pointing, where their toes are pointing. And there's things that they can do to trip you up. And you have to go one way or the other or stay in the middle before the ball's kicked. So... I, I just really, really enjoyed watching Turner do his thing there, and I, I think without him, it was absolutely a loss for the USA, which may have been better in this case. <laughs> Agreed. Um, yeah, Matt Turner, kind of the hero of this particular match and really of the entire uh, tournament for the U.S. because, honestly, I don't think there was a, a, a great ton of bright spots from this particular tournament for the u.s um but yeah matt turner heroic loved his celebration when he saved just kind of like yeah i'm 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 the shit (laughs) um didn't love jesus ferreira copying said celebration when his terrible penalty was nearly saved um jesus ferreira is someone that has increasingly bothered me (laughs) as time goes on because he really only tends to fucking show up when uh, we're playing just the worst teams possible. Um, Although he does score against Panama, which we can talk about, but yeah, um, sort of a max for staffing of soccer. That is just a a horrible comparison. Actually. (laughs) He's the max for staffing when they're playing guys that, you know, have, day jobs in Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> so was was the the two two tie before they went to the kicks. That was an own goal, right? Yeah. So the 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 goal that the US scored to force penalty kicks was yeah, it was an own goal. Uh it was it takes a huge deflection off of the, the Canada defender Kennedy, his name. Um, so, yeah, that was an own goal. Um, and basically, Matt Turner sort of backpacking this team into a semifinal against Panama, which uh, I had somewhat the displeasure of getting to watch that entire match. Uh, I'll preface it with this. Um, first off, I just want to say, and maybe I. I don't know, I sound salty or something. I don't know. I don't give a fuck that the U.S. lost to Panama in the in the Gold Cup semifinal because this is a team of half the f- roster, and I'll just, I will literally go through them all, who I never care to see in a U.S. jersey ever again. Julian Gressel, um, let's see, uh, Aaron Long, I couldn't, I think he's terrible. Uh, Matt Miazga, um, Christian Roldan, Jordan Morris, Sean Johnson, DeAndre Edwin, 
Jackson Yule. These are players that have been largely stinking it up with this team for two, three, four years, and they keep coming back. And uh, I think part of that is because of Greg Berhalter. Uh, I think another part of that, um, to put on more of a tinfoil hat, is I, I think there's a bit of pressure to try and incorporate MLS guys in this team, even though some of these MLS players shouldn't ever be sniffing a U.S. roster. Now, I, you know, not to go Alex Jones, but I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of pressure on, on the U.S. men's national team head coach to incorporate MLS guys that really don't deserve to be there uh, so, into these I'm rosters. I'll shout out uh, Grandpa Gary. You just made two very distinct references, tinfoil hat and <laughs> Alex Jones. So that's for you, Grandpa Gary. The water <laughs> is making our players bad. Yeah, uh, and that's as far into the conspiracy route that I'll go. There are some particular members of the, shall we say, alternative soccer media uh, that will go really deep into that. All I'm saying is there are guys that are involved in this team way too much. And like I said, guys that I never care to see again. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned Christian Roldan, but um, yeah. So like I said, don't care that they lost to Panama in the Gold Cup. This is a C team, half the roster Please do not show up again. Um, but again, it, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it's like putting a dog down that had broken its back or something. It's like just put this fucking team out of its misery because they don't deserve to be here. Half of, There were three, four players that I liked their performance throughout this tournament in. I would say James Sands was one of them. Brian Reynolds, I thought, was pretty decent. Dewan Jones was okay. He was good from time to time. And Matt Turner, who is already our solid number one keeper. So um, that's my rant about this game. And I will say Panama deserved most of the credit because they played uh, a style of play that really disrupted the way the U.S. was supposedly trying to play, um, and they kept the game close throughout most of the game, and they actually had the majority of the possession throughout most of the game. Um, so good for Panama, really, is what I'll say. First half, um, you didn't miss anything, so you said you tuned in the 64th minute. That's when everything happens, basically. So... Uh, rant over but what did you think of of this one well i we i ended the recording of the usa canada game and then turned on this game and didn't think that it was going to go to et which it did mm-hmm. doubly so it was mildly interesting to watch i i had an, a looming feeling from 
the last moments of this game into extra time, not the the PKs, I was like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. And then, you know, our our keeper couldn't really defend for some reason. Um, but as you said, and Bailey mentioned as well, those kicks are, it's just either going to happen or it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's kind of just a lottery most of the time. Now I think there is momentum. So like if you save one, I honestly think, you know, the next time it comes around, you have a higher chance. Cause you're just, you're in the taker's mind. Like this guy can save, uh, a, a, a kick. Whereas there's an art form to it. for Yeah. Sure. I, I believe that if you get that first save and the other, just like the game right before it, you get the first save and the other team doesn't. I mean, everybody's feeling that energy on the field. I'm, I'm really glad I called it uh, after the first ET on this game, because I don't think I could have sat through another ET and PK like, both teams that we played and the U.S. failed to execute a game in which it ended. That's the way yeah. I view this entire tournament is all the teams have the in like utter inability to finish a game. It wasn't like when you're watching two fantastic teams play and you're like, oh, my God, they just can't get one up on each other. It seemed like literally everybody was fumbling around, and yeah. just, they were like, "All right, well, we're gonna go to PKs." Just, <laughs> That's what it felt like when this went to extra time. I was like, uh, "This is just actually, I can't. I don't think I can take another thirty minutes of this shit." Uh, of course, Panama gets a goal in the 99th minute, and uh, I didn't really feel like that was it because the U.S. that did rightfully so kind of light a fire under them that Ferreira somehow scores he actually scores a bit of a banger to make it 1-1 but um yeah I don't know the penalty kicks is a tiebreaker so uh, who knows like you you do that 10 more times there would be 10 different outcomes um so Congrats to Panama more than anything, because I don't think we learned much from the U.S. in this particular tournament at all. Uh, our C team is still pretty firmly our C team. Um, and like I said uh, a number of times now, uh, quite a few guys that if they just never pull on that USA jersey again, I would actually be quite happy. So, um kind of a disappointing way to end the 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 summer of international men's tournaments at least but i don't know life goes on and good luck to panama i hope they beat mexico in in the final on sunday and that's where so i'll leave that, it that is that is your prediction panama <laughs> wins the no <laughs> i think no, Mex- I- mexico would probably yeah. smoke them okay Mexico brought pretty close to a full-strength roster, so I think they'll pretty easily handle Panama, but you never know. And after this CONCACAF, the league, 
League <laughs> World Cup Series. What uh, should we look forward to? More MLS, a little more Columbus Crew talk. What do you think? Uh, I would like to infuse a bit more MLS into the remaining European offseason that we're currently in the midst of. Um, actually, um, the Women's World Cup kicks off uh, like <laughs> a week from now. Uh, <laughs> so that'll go ahead and alienate any women listeners that we may or may not have on the podcast. So that's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, the U.S. women's team looking to defend their crown. Don't know if we'll actually cover any games in depth, but something to oh, pay attention to. You want to cover one? or I, I think it's worth mentioning that our U.S. women's team is could probably... Well, it, it's going to be better better watching than this past tournament, for sure, yeah. I think. Uh, which isn't setting the bar extremely high, but, I mean, in the past, I have watched the U.S. women's team play, and it always has been pretty entertaining. I mean, they're really good. Yeah. So, I will say, and I'm kind of guilty of this, but I at least keep a loose eye on what they're doing from outside of just the World Cups. Um, I don't think they are the favorite to win, and I don't think that's really a bold statement to say they have the coach Flatko Andonovsky who can't seem to find the best out of his team and are also, I just don't think they're as strong as they've been in the past paired with each edition of the women's world cup. The rest of the field gets stronger because like, let's be real. Like for a long time, the U S was, really one of the few countries that put actual effort into women's sports at all. I, I think that's an excellent point that not a lot of people have either said or thought about because since basically since I was in high school, so like 10 years ago, the U S women's team has been dominant Yeah, in soccer. Uh, and everybody's like, yeah, we're so good. But I, and I, I've, mentioned it once but i never really put any thought into it until you just said it is very a lot of other countries do not promote women's sports as much as the u.s yeah. so it's not very surprising that we have the most developed or had the most developed professional women's soccer team yeah that, and that's what i will say about that i think um not to at all discredit what the U.S. women's national team has done in the past, but it's just like the which with each passing tournament in the World Cup, it uh, it does get harder and harder to win, which is only a good thing, you know. You want it to be competitive, so um, that one kicks off next week and is in Australia, New Zealand. So there's some really funky kickoff times. So like 9 p.m on a Thursday night, which is really a Friday night in Australia is when the U S play their first game. But there's also like some 2 AM, 3 AM Eastern kickoff. So they're like, I want to say, and I, I could be wrong cause I haven't done it in a while, but when I was messing about in the land down under, 
they're like 16 hours in in one direction it's one of the biggest time swings from eastern time that there is yeah yeah so definitely worth paying attention to uh i think if i'm not mistaken the podcast might be taking a week off due to our our stalwart going on holiday is that true that's correct um (laughs) we won't mention exactly where for specific reasons but uh, security reasons i will be uh out next week and bailey will be taking possession of his new home and moving so um we will probably have a bit of a hiatus yeah so just don't be alarmed to our droves of fans but uh yeah we'll come back and talk about uh the hungary hungarian grand prix or hungary grand prix Mm -hmm. Um, i'll just give a little bit of a taste here first gp was 86 it's 70 laps circuit length is 4.3 kilometers race distance 306.6 and change lap record 116.6 lewis hamilton Hamilton yes in 2020 so when we come back we will speak of that and whatever football you may or may not want to cover yeah so stay tuned but for now i think that's all we've got all right so we will get gone what a match day this was It's lights out and away we go. Four executive producers. Richard Tanaka. Sean Zustin. Adam Reinford. And Ignacio Eduardo. This has been Tackling the Chicane. Copyright 2023.